From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos, meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now, as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. And good morning, welcome to the program. I'm Duncan Campbell, and we're in for a treat today. My guest is also caught in snow traffic, and will be on in just oh five minutes or so. We're planning, and his name is Harry Jaffe, and he's been on before with respect to the book he wrote that got published just before Christmas called Why Bernie Sanders Matters, subtitled, A Nation Will Not Survive Morally or Economically When So Few Have So Much and So Many Have So Little. Now, Harry Jaffe is an independent journalist. He's the author of a number of other books. He's not a member of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And he wrote it out of uh, just an interest in who is this person that is suddenly appearing on the scene in the American public conversation and wanted to find out where he came from, who he was. Uh, And he wrote essentially a very accessible, unauthorized biography here that's appreciative of Bernie Sanders' experience. It's not an attack, uh, unauthorized biography, nor is it particularly uh, anything to do with the campaign. Basically, he just wanted to see, you know, what were some of the influences that uh, had happened in the life of Bernie Sanders and uh, his career that had shaped him, if you will, and the message that he's bringing uh, uniquely to the national conversation at this point. So he's an editor-at-large at The Washingtonian and a leading journalist covering the city of Washington, D.C., its politics, its crime, its heroes, its villains, and so on. He's been published in a number of things, including Harper's and Esquire and newspapers around the country, and so on. He'll be joining us shortly here. And the framing for this particular program, say right now up front while we're waiting, this is not going to be another news event of the kind that we're seeing in the social media, in the cable news, in the network news, and wherever. This is not about the political campaign. Caucuses have already taken place here in Colorado. Bernie won the caucuses in Colorado by 60% to 40% over Hillary Clinton. That process is moving forward with the county meeting tomorrow and then the state meeting and so on. So that saturation coverage, uh, except for when Bernie gets blacked out, as he did on Tuesday night, when uh, none of the networks covered his speech while they were having the cameras trained on the Mar-a-Lago conference room there where Trump lives waiting for the magnet, the media magnet to speak. And so Bernie got essentially blacked out by all of the news media. And if you wanted to see his speech after the uh, primaries, you had to do it on social media or on your phone, whatever. So uh, there are a lot of interesting things about this whole process, how he's been treated by the media and uh, and how the message has been spun way, one way or the other. But what we're interested in, in this particular program today, is how does his message and this phenomenon of Bernie Sanders fit into an overall cultural transformation narrative? And we're looking for, we might say, Bernie and beyond. Our focus is going to be, what is this that's awakening in the American culture? What transformative or change energies are being awakened? Uh, Put them in some kind of historical context and then look beyond this election, whatever the outcome, whoever the nominees are, to see if this particular energy reawakened after a 40-year absence since the 60s can actually be continued and um, activate many, many aspects of the consciousness and system transformation, which we all know are so necessary for our society, uh, much less our planet, to survive. So we could put it this way. Fifteen years ago, I did a 
series of dialogues with Joseph Chilton Pierce that you can get on the internet, Joseph Chilton Pierce and Duncan Campbell. This was 15 years ago when he published his very, very excellent book, The Biology of Transcendence. And basically what he was saying is that the brain research and psychological research has indicated that we are programmed for transcendence, which means getting beyond duality, getting beyond our left brain, right brain duality, moving from the reptilian brain, which has a complete binary duality going on. A snake will eat its own egg. That's a cold-blooded animal. It doesn't recognize an affiliation. We go through the mammalian brain, where a mother, in order to raise a child in a more complex uh, form, has to have a sense of bonding and empathy. And, uh, and then we move on to our neocortex, where we have imagination and ideation and ability to think in the future and the past and language and all the rest of that. But then he said there's a fourth brain in the prefrontal lobes where a kind of unity consciousness is accessible to us and that the brain is programmed to move forward unless something happens, which means that unless something gets disrupted in the emotional field, people can actually regress back into conflict and sense of isolation, sense of the other as danger, all of that. So the large, large picture is that in human culture and society, there is this issue of how do we deal with this sense of being separate and also yearning for unity. And a given culture, we defined it as what is passing in our political discourse for the establishment. That's the name. So culture, actually, its purpose is to provide stasis and uh, predictability and order. So culture is always the status quo attempting to preserve itself, which includes preserving the advantages for the few and not for the many. And that's the nature of culture. And so to move that along, to have that so-called moral arc of compassion, you know, bend historically, as they say rhetorically, you know, toward justice, there has to be an awakening of consciousness in every single member, or at least a critical mass of the society so that we go back and, in a sense, bring our indigenous consciousness into our modern mind. Uh, the indigenous way is always to think of community, think of what's fair, think of what's best for the whole tribe or community, because if you don't do that uh, in those days, you didn't survive. So what's very interesting here is that the whole evolutionary project of humanity can be described, as I have done for a number of years here on Living Dialogues, of activating that indigenosity, that sense of being uh, a member of a, an alive universe where there's great respect and connection to the natural world, plants, animals, the landscape, even the stars above, all my relations, all our relations, and, and realizing that we are a critical member of that and that we need to act in harmony with all of our brothers and sisters, as the uh, Pope said in his encyclical, referring to plants and animals and, indeed, uh, the land itself. Now, when we move into the modern mind, it's like an adolescent phase where we're individuating. We're actually striving to separate ourselves and empower ourselves, uh, just like an adolescent does when it pulls away from the family. And now we're stranded in that with our technology and our military and our these new, quote, financial instruments, uh, and so on. And we've moved into a real crisis here. The first time for 100 years, the inequality in our society has been this massive and this destructive. And people are waking up finally, as Thomas Piketty, the French economist, has said, to this reality in this election. And the people that are waking up to that are actually either going for Donald Trump or they're going for Bernie Sanders. Uh, the establishment candidates are the other candidates, and they're wanting to more or less preserve the order and the status quo with little reform elements or tinkering at the edges. 
And so this is very interesting because any time there is going to be a, a deep systemic change and transformation as climate change is now requiring we make at the economic level, at the level of fossil fuels, at the level of social organization, uh, there has to be some kind of revolutionary evolution, if you will. And when Joseph Chilton Pierce and I were talking about that, we talked about that in terms of real transformation as opposed to reform. Because anytime you try to reform culture, it just absorbs it into culture. That's its job. Okay, so to make a real systemic shift, one could call it revolution, one could call it uh, deep evolution. Uh, in any event, it has to happen at a certain point or the system will collapse. It's not sustainable. So this is where we are, and Bernie Sanders is bringing his particular message to this crisis of evolution that the planet is in altogether, and we're all in it. And so the question is, what can we find out about Bernie Sanders that can inform how we can envision what happens after this political election? It's only one political season, it's only one election, and whoever gets the nomination or whoever gets uh, to be the president of the United States, uh, this is a much larger picture we need to paint here. How does this energy that's gotten awakened in this political tableau and in that part of the culture get really used for deeper transformation in the arc toward fairness, justice, and a well-being for all, not just the few. So with that introduction, I want to call now onto the air Harry Jaffe. Harry, are you there? I am certainly here. I'm fascinated by what you have to say, and I think that in, in an odd way, Bernie Sanders a uh, 74-year-old Jewish guy from Brooklyn, does play a role in this. So I'm, I'm, I'm certain that he, having studied his background in, in the book, um, you know, Why Bernie Sanders Matters, I'm not so sure that he would uh, accept his role as you portray it, because Sanders is, is a numbers guy, as we all know. Uh, he believes and has said for years and decades that there are too few uh, who have too much and that there needs to be more sharing of the wealth and more opportunity. But I think that you have to bring it full circle to see that the kind of changes that he uh, is advocating, in fact, I think apply to evolution at a larger scale of uh, you know, all of us getting together in, in a sharing society. Uh, so, you know, Bernie Sanders, the, you know, the hardcore uh, politician, the, you know, the, the, the socialist, sees the numbers and sees the inequality. But I think if you expand what he has to, you know, what he's advocating to your realm, I, I think that there is a common ground. And I think that uh, he, you know, we have gotten to a point as a, as a society, as a financial, um, you know, economic uh, entity, uh, that things are so out of proportion that uh, people across the board uh, of all races and, co and colors and ages are agreeing with uh, Bernie Sanders that you know we're we, we are headed in the wrong direction because the society and the economy is becoming so uh divided and so uh in, in unequal and so out of whack that it will take some you know radical changes to bring it back into some kind of uh you know e equitable order what i find so interesting is that you know, people say radical, people say revolution. All, all Sanders is, is um, suggesting is that we share a little bit more. <laughs> it's not, he's not calling for, uh, you know, a Marxist, uh, Maoist uh, revolution where he sends, you know, like as Mao did in the Cultural Revolution, where he sends, uh, you know, people who are living in the city and making a, fit, a lot of money back into the country to see what it's like to live in a, in a poor rural area. You know, Bernie Sanders is not suggesting that. He's just suggesting that the tax rates 
you know, uh, maybe uh, favor the middle class and the and the working class a little bit more. He's he is it radical to say that there should be uh, health care for everybody who needs it? Is it radical to say that uh, if you want a college education in a public college or university that you shouldn't have to, you know, pay enormous uh, sums in, in tuition and then in debt? I mean, what, what I find amusing, kind of stepping back from this uh, conversation, is why are those ideas so radical? Why, why isn't it sensible? So that's kind of, a, you know, after researching Sanders and seeing where, where he's coming from and seeing where it's gone now, uh, that it is kind of unpredictably brought to the, uh, the consciousness of the whole country. Because let's face it, Duncan, nobody expected Sanders to, to get much beyond February. Um, you know, everybody thought, certainly everybody here in Washington thought he was going to be knocked out of the race uh, by the middle of February. But it says so much that he's still in the game. Not only is he still in the game, but our major interest here is how can these uh, awakenings, if you will, uh, particularly among the youth, uh, the millennials, uh, the future of the country, actually be sustained uh, no matter what happens in this election cycle? There's the possibility uh, for the newly awakened youthful electorate to feel either radically disappointed or become cynical if things happen in this process that they feel are not fair or transparent. There's the possibility that, uh, on the other hand, the deeper message here that we've been talking about, that uh, there are uh, now realizations uh, of the actuality of the system and where it is in its own uh, moving through time, that this is a time of potential great historical transformation. I personally have predicted that this next decade of 2015 to 20. 25 is going to be a decade of awakening and deep transformation uh, like the 30s and the 60s in the 20th century, as has been identified by a number of commentators. We talked in an earlier program about uh, uh, Bob McChesney, Robert McChesney, saying that, you know, every American student should understand that there were two, and I would say even three, uh, great transformative moments, if you will, in American 20th century history. Uh, the one that's not often thought about, but it clearly should be considered here as well, is the Teddy Roosevelt movement and the movement in the early part of the first uh, decade or so of the 20th century uh, of a kind of populism, a kind of progressivism uh, that was around the country. And Teddy Roosevelt was the great trust buster and who felt that the monopolization and the concentration of power in corporations was a real danger to the health uh, of the uh, overall economy. But where that really came into focus, of course, was with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, in the 30s. And what has been often observed is that FDR actually saved capitalism from itself. The capitalist system uh, is described in many different ways, and it takes many different forms. But one of the forms it had taken with the uh, period of time that was called the Gilded Age was the untrammeled and unregulated, uh, we might call it, uh, greed and desire for power by those in a position to do so. There were the railroads uh, with all their scandals and the end of the 19th century, the rise of J.P. Morgan and the bankers uh, with the railroads. Then there was the rise of the Rockefellers and uh, fossil fuels uh, with the bankers again. And the result of all that uh, and the speculation and the financial instruments of the day was uh, not only the impoverishment of the many, but the great crash of 1929. And so when FDR, uh, in his first inaugural address in 1932, spoke to the people, he said very significantly, we have always known that greed is bad morality. Now we know it is also bad economics. And in that stressful time, Basically, uh, as a member of the elite class, but who is dedicated to a higher ideal, just like Eisenhower, as a member of the military, was dedicated to a higher ideal and warned us uh, about the military-industrial complex, and nothing really 
uh, <laughs> took place in terms of heeding his warning, and that's another aspect that we're in right now that's extremely debilitating to the uh, country as a whole. But he was an insider, and he could see that coming. Well, FDR was an insider, and he realized that uh, if this was not going to repeat itself, uh, things needed to be done. The Securities and Exchange Commission was uh, established uh, with great uh, opposition from the bankers. Uh, the bankers were held radically accountable by uh, the, one of the federal commissions that were set up, far more so than today when there's been no accountability on the part of any uh, individual bankers during the entire Obama administration since 2008, uh, with now the predictable, very debilitating results of that. Back in FDR's day, they had the Glass-Steagall Act that kept the bankers from using your money on deposit for uh, um, very reckless uh, speculation uh, where the public would always be left holding the bag if the investments went wrong, and so on and so forth. So if we take this very larger view, there's another perspective we can introduce here, and this is about the culture as a whole, because the culture depends on its economic system, and that can be extremely influential in how we experience our lives. So there is a French economist uh, named Thomas Piketty, P-I-K-E-T-T-Y, who came to great prominence two years ago when he published his magnum opus on capitalism. It was a New York Times bestseller. People had it on their coffee table. Who knows how many of them actually ever read it. But he is a kind of modern Alexis de Tocqueville. He's from France, and he's looking at our country compassionately and in a friendly way. We go back to de Tocqueville, and we find that he wrote his great book, uh, Democracy in America, having traveled in America for nine months and compared the energy of the democratic project of this new nation and its potential with the decline of what he called the ancien regime or the old feudal regime that he was part of. He was an aristocrat, so he had time to travel and reflect and think and so on. So he sang the praises, in a sense, of the American democracy project, but he warned that there would be certain problems with it. Now, those certain problems have now shown their head in an extremely uh, ugly and uh, crisis way. How Piketty frames it is that in his description of capitalism, he said, if capitalism continues to be unregulated as it essentially has been in the last 35 years since Reagan all the way through H.W. Bush and Clinton on uh, the Democratic Leadership Conference and Robert Rubin was his secretary of treasury and they abandoned the Glass-Steagall Act and on and on. A familiar story to us only now. We see that the result is, he said, inequality will become a greater and greater phenomenon and uh, very, very debilitating and dangerous to the overall economy because it won't work. It cannot go on. It's not sustainable this way uh, just by the internal laws of unregulated capitalism. And so he then updated this two months ago when he said that his now more up-to-date research shows that the inequality economically is happening at an accelerated pace, even more so now in America, and it has turned America into an oligarchy, actually a plutocracy. The democratic project itself is not alive and well. So the vision of America has been changed. And he said, I see, last month he said this, I see that a whole politico-ideological orientation is coming to an end, the one that's been in place since 35 years, beginning with pre-Reagan, and then Reagan himself as a president really put the whole thing in major motion. So he sees all of that coming to an end because it can't be sustained. So now we have, you know, Bernie Sanders arriving and calling out the rigged system and calling out very publicly things that people in the establishment have never talked about. And that's what's exciting and interesting and transformative here. Donald Trump is doing his version of it on the other end uh, because he said, I don't take any money for my campaign. But his has got a different flavor. But it's still people that are kind of waking up to how they've not been democratically represented. So here's the issue that we want to talk about in the second half of our program. 
uh, how can these insights, uh, you know, both from Paketti and uh, the millennials and the people waking up on social media, how can this elder youth dialogue, as it were, be sustained no matter who gets the nomination and no matter who gets the presidency? So that's what we're going to devote the next part of our program to. I'm Duncan Campbell. You're listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, and uh, on the web at www.kgnu.org. We're up and down the whole front range, 2 million demographic here at 88.5 FM and 1390 AM. Now, if you want to join this dialogue, you can call us at 303-442-4242, 303-442-4242. I'm talking with Harry Jaffe author of Why Bernie Sanders Matters, and the title of this program is Bernie and Beyond, Deep Cultural Transformation. So Bernie has come and given his gift. He continues to give it. We watch establishment people continuing to try to narrow the debate to small reforms and not rock the boat and say that's realistic and pragmatic. And then we have at least two candidates here that are representing this deeper force that uh, is being awakened that Thomas Piketty has, uh, has signaled. So with that, Harry, what are your thoughts here about going forward? Just imagine a post-presidential situation and getting from here to there. What kind of things could happen to make sure that this energy of transformation has an opportunity to, to go forward in a healthy way and, uh, and address a lot of the problems of climate change, fossil fuels, uh, you know, economic inequality, the need for jobs, uh, a healthy retirement, all those things. Well, I, I think that you're, you, you put your finger on the, the situation now where you've got uh, Donald Trump, who is pushing populist buttons, um, but uh, and anti-establishment buttons, but kind of on a fascist uh, side. And you've got Bernie Sanders, who is actually doing the same thing in a populist campaign and anti-establishment campaign, but he is very much on a socialist uh, side. Uh, so in a way, kind of a, a, an odd commonality, uh, but from very different, uh, you know, polls and points of view. Um, you know, the, 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 the general um, uh, point of view here in Washington is that uh, let's, it, let's get over with this. Uh, it's going to be Hillary Clinton. She's going to win the nomination. Uh, I, the President um, Obama apparently weighed in yesterday with, uh, in front of some uh, very wealthy donors and fundraisers that, that it's time for Bernie Sanders to basically, um, you know, relinquish uh, his campaign and uh, move on. I, I'm personally offended by that, and not just because I wrote a book about Bernie Sanders, but um, I agree with the Sanders campaign when, when they say, you know, this, this campaign is not over. This race is not over. There are, uh, you know, dozens of states where Bernie Sanders wants to take his message. So, number one, I don't think that anybody is, you know, we, we can't say goodbye to Bernie Sanders and his, and his active campaigning until we get to June and beyond. Having said that, Bernie Sanders is still an elected senator from the state of Vermont with four more years left in his term. So if you just look at, at Bernie Sanders and who he is as a leader, um, he still has that uh, forum in the U.S. Senate. Um, I believe that uh, he is going to have money left over from his campaign. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in the many millions of dollars. And I think that he has the wherewithal and within the rules and regulations of the campaign finance system to continue campaigning, uh, to get the word out about the things that he finds so important, as you say, climate change, um, you know, as you say, uh, you know, uh, the rights of workers and equal pay and $15 minimum wage. I think he will continue to do that. But I also think looking forward that it's going to require uh, uh, many, many millions of people beyond uh, one person uh, to make uh, real change. And Sanders himself says this over and over and over again. He ends almost every single speech by saying, 
No one person, whether you are president of the United States or the Pope, can uh, make real change. It has to come from, uh, and he points his finger out at the tens of thousands of people in front of him to say, you know, you have to show up. You have to participate. This is not a a one-person operation. And if you think about great movements of change in this country, um, you take the civil rights movement, take the movement against the, uh, the Vietnam War, the, the, you can't necessarily point to one single leader. I mean, I found it absurd when, when Congressman John Lewis, um, who, you know, was very, very much part of the civil rights movement, uh, he got his head busted in Selma, he walked side by side with Martin Luther King, he had the gall to say, well, you know, I was in the civil rights movement. I didn't see Bernie Sanders. I'm sorry. This, you know, the civil rights movement was nationwide. I'm not so sure that Don Lewis was that present in Chicago or Detroit or Washington, D.C. So my point is that it's going to take uh, a movement to make the kinds of changes that you're talking about. And that's an open-ended question, Duncan. I mean, are people who uh, have come out to support Sanders um, financially and uh, electorally, are they, are they committed? Are they uh, really that um, frustrated and angry and resolved about the way things are in this country to continue a movement, to run for office locally? to raise issues, um, and to show up in Washington, D.C. I mean, let me give you one example, and then I'll, I'll leave it back, turn it back to you. Sanders has said over and over again that there is a, a will and a majority in this country to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, $15 an hour is, is, is close to starvation. Um, as Sanders has pointed out, even people who work for the federal government here in Washington, D.C., in uh, the tasks of serving food to the, to the U.S. senators, of cleaning the House and Senate office buildings, they're getting paid seven fifty an hour. I mean, it's, it's awful. But if Bernie Sanders goes back to the Senate and, and, and introduces a bill to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and at, one, at a certain point, he says, okay, now I want the people who have supported me in my presidential campaign to show up in Washington, D.C. And when Mitch McConnell uh, says, you know, uh, as the head of the Republican uh, Party in the Senate, we don't care about this $15 minimum wage, and we're not going to vote on it. Are, are a million people going to show up in the West Lawn of the Capitol? and say and, and force this uh, Congress to make a, you know, have a vote on the $15 minimum wage, that's the next challenge. The next challenge is um, Bernie Sanders, let's say he doesn't uh, win the nomination, which is harder and harder to, to, uh, to make happen for him. And, and I can tell you for certain there's no way that Bernie Sanders is going to be a vice president. I don't think that uh, Hillary Clinton would choose him, and I don't think he would accept if chosen. So he's back in the Senate. He's still advocating for something specific like $15 minimum wage. Will Americans show up uh, in Washington, D.C.? Uh, that's the next question. Um, you know, the, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, we think of Martin Luther King, but the civil rights movement was carried on in every single a state and, and big cities and counties across the country. Um, and, you know, I think that we'll have to see what happens in the next 5 to 10 to 20 years. I mean, you, Duncan, have a, have a wonderful, um, positive, optimistic point of view about the potential for change, but I think uh, once this campaign is over, we're going to see. Well, in terms of my wonderful, optimistic view, I'll say this. I've been teaching here for over 20 years on this program and on my Living Dialogues program that there is an evolutionary imperative of consciousness. 
And if we don't meet it as a species, we will uh, certainly fall back into the evolutionary muck uh, as 99% of all prior manifestations and forms have done in the last 4 billion years. And that formula is very, very simple. It's that we are in a developmental uh, process that you can analogize to that of a human being, where we start out in the womb and in the womb, let us say, of uh, intact and uh, loving family, where we feel, as we did as indigenous people in our first uh, manifestation as human human beings uh, on the planet, uh, that we belong in a whole universe. That is the native way. All my relations, there's respect and understanding that we are all in this together and we each have a role to play on the planet in a complementary way. Then there's this adolescent phase of development, which I call the modern mind, where more and more we uh, are relying on the left brain and the ability on a masculine way to build techne outside the body. In other words, not to create children within the body, but to actually, in a male way, uh, create uh, tools and technology. That's from the Greek, techne. And we've fallen in love with our technology. We have what Joseph Campbell calls a patriarchy, uh, a social setup for the last 6,000 years, all of which is designed to promote liberty and freedom in a masculine way as opposed to nurturing and inclusiveness in a feminine way. And what I've been shown for 20 years and more is that for the evolutionary imperative to move forward, we need to make a sacred marriage and balance between the inclusiveness and what's good for everyone, the feminine inclusiveness and this sort of masculine uh, individuation. If we do not do that, and the message is coming in loud and clear from the planet itself, this world that we live in, based on fossil fuels, Wall Street and uh, Silicon Valley with their uh, extreme inequality that they're promoting uh, the lack of compassion or feeling for the rest of the people in the society, it's simply not sustainable. And that's pretty clear. And only people that are locked in some kind of self-promoting illusion that are within that 1% would even try to deny that. Uh, but given that, the question is, as Eric Erickson called for many years ago, the great psychologist, is our need for an ethical dialogue about society's values between elders and youth uh, able to reawaken now? We had it in the 60s, and it ended with the assassination of the two Kennedys and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and now we have it rising again. Bernie is getting 84% of the youth vote. This is very significant because they refer to him as the old guy, but I like his ideas. It makes sense to me. And there's a very particular elder youth dialogue that plays out in culture to move it forward away from establishment self-preservation to the next level of evolutionary leap because evolution happens in increments, and then there's a leap. I think we're in the leap time now. Will it happen uh, in the near term? Who knows? Uh, but the point is, if it doesn't happen within this next decade, even if we have to go through a great labor contraction of having Trump as the president, and a lot of dislocation and uncertainty and maybe some very negative things happening, uh, even if that happens, it's still... We've got to keep this thing moving forward. There's no guarantee how it's going to turn out. But if we don't stand up and call for these ethical values, uh, then uh, the future is very uncertain. So I want to just put people onto two um, particular uh, things that they can look up online. One of them is a New York Times article, interestingly enough, from uh, three days ago, from March 15, called Don't Trust Anyone Over 30 Except Bernie Sanders. So New York Times, just Google it, don't trust anyone over 30 except Bernie Sanders. And a number of the young millennials that have been voting for Bernie and for Hillary, young people are interviewed, and at the end of it, the reporter says, well, you're supporting Bernie. What do you think's going to happen if he doesn't win the nomination or the presidency? And the young man says, of course we want to see Bernie win, but we have a contingency plan. And that plan he says, continue pushing forward with what Bernie has set forth. That's going to be the deep question, no matter what happens. The second thing I want to focus in on here is the importance of the we. 
Sanders is the only candidate, literally, who's not saying, I will fight for you or I will make these great deals for you. He's actually saying no one person can actually make a transformation of the systemic kind that is required here uh, by themselves uh, because we're still we have our system of you know the polarized congress and so on and so forth just as you said harry what will be necessary is people actively getting into the public space so that the people in Washington, D.C., when they look out their window, will see another march on Washington. They'll see a million people there on the mall saying, we want $15 an hour fair minimum wage, or we want pay equity between men and women, or we want the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about to be radically cut back and our military adventurism to stop and to bring that money back to pay for college tuition whatever, any number of things, okay? But they will require this power of we, and that's the main thing to awaken. So I want to turn people on to a very interesting um, article that just appeared in the Internet, and it's by a uh, Canadian philosophy student. His name is Fred Guerin, but all you need to know for looking it up is it's on Truthout. Beyond the Burn like our program here today is, Bernie and Beyond. It's called Beyond the Burn, How Progressive Movements Leap Ahead of Electoral Politics. So Beyond the Burn, Progressive Movements, Electoral Politics, that will get you there. It just came out yesterday on St. Patty's Day. And what he's saying here, from a philosophic point of view and from an engaged uh, Canadian activist point of view, he's saying that Uh, What we need to do is embrace the idea of genuine social solidarity, that we are not isolated individuals. We are not uh, basing our action on selfish egoism and crass individualism like Ayn Rand would have us believe is the highest American ideal. We remember here that Alan Greenspan was a very close disciple of Ayn Rand. What we need to do is tune into the authenticity rather than the opportunism. The authenticity is a politics and a way of being in society which asserts that the I is a we and the we is an I, as the philosopher Hegel once elegantly put it, close quote. And we can all remember Martin Buber talking about the I-thou connection. So what it is, basically, is that we're all individuals, as uh, we can see it even from um, advanced physics. You know, we're particles, but we can work in a waveform. We have our individuality and our mutual creativity, but we can be both a particle and a wave, and that's what dialogue is all about. I've said this for 20 and more years now on these programs, that we can revive what is called a fundamentally important political and ethical notion, the retrieval of the commons. The commons is not created or sustained by the wealthy elite, but by the economic, artistic, and cultural actions of the people. Close quote again from this article on how progressivism can transcend electoral politics. So that's what we're faced with. In the end of the day, I'll have one more quote. The point is to radically and imaginatively move beyond the current capitalistic, unregulated economic system and the entire military-industrial prison complex and create a workable economy and a workable priority for expenditure of funds that will actually create the fairness and the prosperity and the possibility for education for the whole society, whether we call it make it whole or whether we say, you know, fundamental fairness, it's all moving in that direction. So uh, uh, the final thing I'll say here is that this particular Canadian put me onto something I didn't even know about, which I highly recommend people uh, Google. It's called the Leap Manifesto, a call for Canada based on caring for the earth and one another. So just remember, Google the Leap Manifesto. It came out in the spring, organized by the This Changes Everything team that came out around Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything. And when you see some of the people that are involved here, I know many of you don't really know or think about Canada very much, but my wife is Canadian. I follow this, and it's a terrific thing that's happened up there. And you've got people signing it. Alanis Morissette, Bruce Coburn, David Suzuki, Donald Sutherland, Ellen Page, Gujaw from my wife's Haida tribe, John Ralston Saul, the great philosopher, 
philosopher up there, Leonard Cohen, Maud Barlow, who's leading the world's uh, uh, preservation of water as a public good, Michael Ondaatje, who wrote The English Patient, uh, Naomi Klein, Neil Young, Nino Ricci, Pamela Anderson, Tantu Cardinal, the great indigenous woman leader, Rachel McAdams, who is in Spotlight, William Gibson, the author, uh, on and on it goes, uh, including Gabor Mate and John Vaillant, many organizations uh, involved. And so Google that. Just realize that things are happening beyond just our myopic American uh, uh, media that seems more fascinated with Donald Trump than anything else. Uh, uh, and we can take advantage of this moment to, you know, be inspired by what is happening up in Canada, inspired by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission regarding their Native Americans and so on. And this was a conference that happened about a year ago with 60 representatives from indigenous peoples and political activists and artists and so on. The Leap Manifesto. Okay. All of that having been said, We've got a caller here, and we're going to get her on the line and see where this takes us. Uh, Libby, you're on the line. Hi, Duncan. What an interesting program. My goodness, I am just so, my, my brain is just popping with ideas and research oh. tasks. I think this is just such a great uh, dialogue about the discussion between elders and youth that Bernie has uh, stimulated and his ideas, they just sound so familiar. As soon as he says it, we all recognize <laughs> the truth of what he's saying, and we're saying, well, yeah, we have to have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. We have to do something about that. But the question becomes, what can we do? And, um, you know, Hillary's saying, well, she's the pragmatic one. She knows how to roll up her sleeves and work with that kind of a Congress. And we're thinking, well, you know, yikes, but what are you going to try to do with that Congress? And... Um, so I have, uh, I'm bringing in something, uh, you've talked about the populists on the left and the populists on the right, and I'm, uh, I've been working the past few years to open up a space uh, for dialogue about what can happen in local communities if we can just empower them for the kind of experimentation that Boulder took on with the remunicipalization. And so uh, I'm working with the Community Rights Amendment to the Colorado State Constitution, and that's connected with a national organizing strategy to look at the real DNA of our Constitution and where some of the problems that we're experiencing that are producing this incredible inequality and the oligarchy uh, taking over what we thought was going to be a democratic experiment in government. Um, what is it in our current Constitution that's driving that result? It's a question similar to the one that Thomas Piketty is asking on the economic front. So I'm just extremely excited about the possibility for local experimentation to push back on corporate rights, to pull up on rights of nature, and to start uh, a local democratic dialogue where the people themselves are taking responsibility for their life community on all levels, from nature through people. So uh, it, it's... Uh, such a, a huge conversation that you've opened up, and I have a lot of things to say. I'm afraid that I'm going to be incoherent. <laughs> I've never known you to be incoherent, but when we get passionate, there's so many ideas that could tumble out, and I say, let's take a rain check on this. This is Libby Como, who's done such wonderful work uh, when you convened that whole conference on water. Yeah. The downstream neighbor. That was, uh, yeah. that was a, a thrill. I know. And, and so many of these conversations were happening there. And, mm -hmm. and another one is, is about to happen on what, what kind mm -hmm. of experimentation and new models for governance can we uh -huh. create if we really learn how to do local uh -huh. democracy without being uh, side-railed by the corporate control of government. Well, let's put this on our agenda. We're going to do more on exactly this because this is the great issue of our time. I'm saying for the next decade, this decade of awakening, this is our opportunity, and we can look to our Canadian neighbor. As I mentioned, I've just discovered, Absolutely. Just Absolutely. discovered I've this. Seen Leap. I've seen Leap, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do it. Let's do it. And one of the things they say, Libby, is let's convene town halls on a local basis. Let's get people organized to find out their ideas. Let's create these things together. They're talking about calling 
town hall meetings across the country. They don't have to be mediated by, you know, cable networks uh, or TV. or KG, have... and you can sponsor them. Exactly. So what a great and idea. And we can return the sponsorship to KGNU with our donations. So I think it's just so exciting, and thank you for the work you've been doing for so many years. Okay. Well, Libby, let's call each other after and stay in touch, and we'll be back here on the air together at some point. Uh, thank you so much for your you call and all you do. Thank okay. you. Okay. And now and we're coming right down to the end. Uh, Alec, you're on the air with us. Yes, hello, Duncan. Hey, uh, Alec. And uh, your guest. Uh, uh, my uh, input would be to consider what the alternatives are. You know, we spend a great deal of time opposing what is and uh, not necessarily offering rather concrete examples of what can be beyond both capitalism and socialism, it seems to me. So, anyway, that's my uh, input for the morning. Okay. Well, Alec, thank you so much for that. We've just come to the end of our time here, and that was a terrific input. And I will say now, uh, Harry Jaffe, as we're coming to the conclusion of this uh, program, we are going to do a part two this coming Sunday, and that's going to be on Living Dialogue. So for our listeners, tune in this Sunday, 1230 to 1 on KGNU, and we're going to do a part two and follow on with these ideas. And the big news here also is that by the grace of the publisher here— we have a number of books that have been authored here by Harry Jaffe. His book, Why Bernie Sanders Matters, A Nation Will Not Survive Morally or Economically When So Few Have So Much and So Many Have So Little. That's being offered now in a special post-pledge drive offer here for $40. So I'll be around here for the next half hour after we go off the air and go on to Morning Sound Alternative. Please call in 303-449-4885, 303-449-4885, and get a copy of this book while it lasts. I have to say it is an amazing look back into the 60s and the role of what we did with counterculture in Vermont and the civil rights movement and Bernie's experience with the Holocaust. His life story is an American story that is not only very interesting to read, but it tells you kind of where this has come from. This didn't come out of nowhere. It's been going on for 30 or 40 years, and its time is now. So, Harry, I want to thank you so much for being on the air this time and before, and we're going to see each other on Sunday. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Okay, and with that, I invite everybody to listen to us on Sunday, 1230 to 1, and we'll see you on Sunday. In the meantime, be sure to call in now in the next half hour for the book. $40 premium, you can add to your contribution, become a new member, whatever. But i got to tell you, this book is not only really easy to read, but it's very exciting and really something that will show you a depth of what's happening right now that you're not going to get anywhere else on TV or in any other media. I'm Duncan Campbell. You're warmly invited to join us again next week on Living Dialogues. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers, you can go to www.kgnu.org forward slash living dialogues. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S. And for additional dialogues, you can also Google Duncan Campbell, The Best in New Paradigm Thinking, and click on the Living Dialogues icon. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best.